755 is real with David O'Brien and Eric O'Flaherty. It is on the air now. Welcome back to 755 is real. I'm David O'Brien, Braves writer for The Athletic. And uh, we have a very special guest today with, with my co-host, of course, Eric O'Flaherty. Eric, what's up, man? Not much. How you doing? I'm good, dude. We got a good, a timely guest today. Yeah. Joining us from uh, right outside his office in sunny Newport Beach, we got Scott Boris. Scott, welcome. Welcome to the show. David Eric's pleasure beer. It's nice to talk baseball. I haven't been able to do that for a while. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, man. You ain't kidding. Um, hopefully, we're talking a whole lot more baseball real soon. I wanted to ask you, Scott, before we get going, I know uh, I just wanted to ask you what – just give your opinion on the state of the game in general, both financially and, and and as far as its appeal, you know, to the fans kind of in the bigger sports landscape. Where do you think we are? Well, you know, we're uh, the health of our game is tremendous. Um, when you look at what an owner has availed to him today versus 20 years ago, you've got well over a hundred million dollars a year from a general fund. You've got, MLB BAM that exists now. You've got franchise appreciation that is estimated to be at somewhere in the area of over a hundred million a year for each franchise. Uh, you've got pretty much any owner who's been in the game for over 10 years is a billionaire. Mm -hmm. So th this idea that we have small market owners that existed 20 years ago, it's kind of a different dynamic economically because they're all wealthy uh, successful and uh, each franchise has choices um, it's not a question of if they can it's what they choose to do um, that makes good business sense for them uh, we have a lot of owners that are using the equity in their franchises to build ancillary uh, investment real estate uh, mm -hmm. entrepreneurial venues outside the stadium which are off the books if you will so that they don't have to revenue share, but they can grow their businesses, which is smart for them to do. Um, so the the promise of the game, the attraction of the game, the economics of the game are really, really uh, at the highest level it's ever been because there are so many investors that want to purchase these franchises. They want to buy in. The reason is, is that they do far better. All of the evaluators have indicated that you're going to get, you know, something in the area of, of 60 something percent ahead of what the stock market gives if you get into these. Mm -hmm. So you're starting to see uh, across the board in all sports, uh, people invest in, uh, in professional sports because the, uh, the investment is, is just good business. So, so did you do a spit take yesterday when, uh, when the commissioner said that <laughs> baseball owners do worse than uh owning a franchise than they would in the stock market? Well, the evidence of that is unsupported <laughs> by, again, he said he spoke to a, an investment banker, uh, and I would didn't mention his name, uh, but the again, I, I can only speak to and address this from the information we collect and the investment bankers and also the evidence of the Cleveland Indians uh, sold <laughs> to give right. an idea. Right. The, the uh, uh, you saw a 10% of Fenway sports being sold. Uh, I am, I get calls all the time from people who want 
to uh, know who to contact to purchase these franchises. So it is something that um, you, you read articles about people who have owned hockey teams or basketball teams that are all doing very, very well. So if that is cl- truly what the investment people are telling uh, Rob, I would say that there's probably opinion out there, but that would be a smaller part of, uh, uh, of the opinion of, of what I think the true nature of what advice most venture capitalists are receiving about professional sports franchises. It's like guys can, can buy a team nowadays 10 years ago and sell, like you said, a, a minority share of it, still be the majority owners and make the money back that they put into it and, and still own the team to be the majority owners. Well, I think the story of people investing anywhere from two or 300 million to 500 million, the truth of it is many of these people are only investing 90 to 100 million. Mm-hmm. They're getting financing because the, their banking uh, entities know it's a good investment. So they're having, they got to invest a small amount of money and then they got to take advantage of monstrous appreciation um, over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. What, uh, if, if, if you could point to one thing out of the last collective bargaining agreement that maybe hurt the game or hurt from the player's perspective, what would you say it was? What, what more than anything were they looking forward to having another CBA to do to well, rectify? Uh, you know, Eric, you can probably go back to this from your playing days. I know I can mind is that, is that I don't think a lot of people, uh, really understood what the draft means to these major league teams. And in 2011, uh, when they allowed to put a cap on the, on the draft, I heard general managers say things two weeks before of what they're going to do and then completely alter their program. Once they got the rules and understood what was available to them. And that was sell off your, your free agents. It's a race to the bottom. So I can get all these value draft picks and get as many as I can. And it gave the fan base a, um, a method of illustrating that losing was okay. It was actually beneficial. If we're not going to win, let's lose. And what I think when you introduce that cancer, that non-competitive cancer into the sport, you've now created that the local fan does not go to the ballpark with the intent of having his Mm -hmm. team win every day. And I think Mm -hmm. we have to reintroduce that into our game. We have to make sure that competitiveness and going to the ballpark, that every fan who wants his team to win, they they have a reason for that team to want to win every day. Yeah, I mean, you go to some of these places, obviously, like Tampa Bay is an exception because they have a brilliant guy running the thing and they're getting and they make do with what they have. But you look at places like Pittsburgh and Miami and in recent years, and there's no feeling like their people are going there expecting to win or and there's just no buzz. There's no excitement. And you're well, talking about second month of the season. Yeah, really, as, as good as Eric's done down in Tampa Bay, remember, they have not won yet. Right, right. And remember that their ability to be – in uh, competing at the highest level in a 10 or 15 year, it's a very small margin of years. So it's not like one of the franchises that really invests every year and they're in it, you know, seven out of 10 or six out of 10 years. It might be three or four out of 10, but the, the reality of it is, is that 
these cycles are driven by the sell-offs of commodities to get younger commodities. And that prevents you, well, it may get you to the playoffs without having the depth of veterans. It's unlikely you're going to ever to win the prize. So we, we keep looking at these models and the model should be that you're designed to go out and be a world champion. That's, that's the goal of every franchise. And we want rules to promulgate that. We want rules that reward for that. And I think the idea that these may have been unintended consequences, because I remember that there was a very small minority of voice on our part saying, this is going to be grossly injurious to the game. Right. And a lot of people just said, oh, it's just the draft. Uh, there's not a lot of success in the draft. Few major leaguers make it. These picks are not worth that that kind of value. Yet, I think the the baseball people clearly understood they were and and it was basically the commissioner's office recommended a bad rule and if they want to keep the cap on the draft then they need to put competitive assurance provisions that indicate that that this club and then the clubs have a desire to win and that winning will allow them the ability to gain draft picks rather than losing allows them to gain draft picks Eric, do you think the players uh, understand the, the current players understand that, and, and maybe the, the older ones understand it more than ones that have been around? Maybe the younger guys are just happy to be in the majors, and you know it's also yeah. new. They don't really think about that stuff. When you're young, you're just trying to sort it out. You know, I mean, you're just trying to stay up in the big leagues as much as you can, and, and you don't really worry too much about that stuff in your first couple of years because you don't understand it. But the more you go through, you go through arbitration, you go through free agency. And you see times, you know, like my first time through free agency, every team was offering me 1.5. And I had to stick it out and wait. And I finally got seven for two years. But I knew my value was more than I was getting offered. But I had to go through it to really appreciate like, damn, there's just there's nothing here. You know, that nobody's really fighting for me like I felt like they should be. And that was because teams can they they don't need veterans anymore. You know, I mean, they'd rather pay a guy 500 grand whatever the minimum is and let him throw a hundred all over the place and try to sort it out at the big league level than a guy that, you know, has a lot of experiences and, and knows how to win. And that's kind of what Scott's talking about is you get to the playoffs and you get deep in those playoffs. You need guys to, to ride and guys that have that experience to help you through those pressure situations, guys that have done it before, like an Eric Hinsky type of guy that comes up big in the playoffs. Maybe he doesn't get you through the season and doesn't, you know, hit all the right numbers for you. But when it comes down to crunch time, you need guys that know how to win. And I feel like that that's completely undervalued in the game now. And if you're old, you're one bad year away from being completely out of the game. And guys that have experience can make your young guys so much better. And it's, it's just not valued anymore. Eric, let's hear from today's sponsors. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing The Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us.
Scott, Eric and I have talked about how the game has skewed so much younger. Every year after year, it seems like Every it gets year. a little younger. And yet the arbitration system hasn't changed. And a guy like Max Fried is not going to become a free agent until he's basically on the downside of his career the way yep. the game is now. I mean, he's going to be close to 30 when he hits free agency. And I, that's what they're trying to – it's hard to get changed, but it's hard to get it done in one one uh, one negotiating period, I guess. Well, you know, the idea of any labor force of unique ability is to titrate it to where how can I put a value on it that minimizes it? The war structure, when you look at it, to have a positive war, you have to be like in the top 80th percentile. Mm -hmm. So they minimize, they set up these standards that really are they have so many holes in it and the evaluation of it is manipulative by design so that we can denigrate the rarity of talent that once you play in the major leagues how how exclusive you are and how gifted you are and they also there is nothing in the war metric that measures experience psychology all the things that you know are so meaningful in a locker room how veterans teach, what that championship mentality derives from. Mm -hmm. All those things are not in any way measured and put into value. And yet it is a monstrous part of winning. Any manager, coach, player will tell you that. But yet in evaluation of value for the goal of winning, so much of that is dismissed. And you know, when you when you look at this, you can't force um, the system to do things that promote valuations other than suggest that winning needs to be put in a perspective of what the relative qualifications are of a player to promote winning. That is the value standard that should be applied, but it's not. The standard to be applied is when I have a ready surplus of players, I will always take the player of lesser value rather than the player of service time experience because of the fact that I'm going to make, I'm going to have a reasoned evaluation based upon my metrics to say I can justify it. Do you feel like that changed, Scott? You know, did you feel like earlier on in your career that was something that was valued and something you could sell? You know, the experience aspect, and now it's just it's harder to sell that to teams, especially you know if you look if you look online, it's something that nobody values anything you can't measure anymore. Do you feel like the immeasurables were easier to sell in the past? Well, you you I've learned in in my job as a lawyer and a former player that the analysis and the employment decision belongs to the team that that they're the employer. What you try to do is you try to advocate that if you as a player want to sustain yourself in your career, you're going to have to do certain things to allow you to gain the experience, which is going to accentuate your physical skills. 
So you have to be very durable. You have to be, um, you know, have leadership qualities. You have to have a skill threshold. Otherwise, this business will bring you in and spit you out, <laughs> as it does for the vast majority. Yep. This, I always tell families, particularly ones when they're making a decision of going to college or high, you know, or, or signing out of high school, this is not a career. This is an opportunity. Right. Mm -hmm. And here's the numbers. Um, I know you're the best as uh, look, we're all great in high school. We're all great in college, yep. you know, but then you go to spring training and the reality hits, you know? Yeah. And, and, and the, the point of it is when you get there, uh, you, you see the light of that probability. And the idea of it is, is that I hope everybody gets a chance in pro baseball, but they do it not with detriment. They do it where baseball, like it is in my life, has been a stepping stone, a wonderful stepping stone where you, you're you so pleased that you got to learn the game from George Kissel or you had people like Bob Kennedy in your life right. that, that aided you in so many ways. And, and, and baseball really helped you in, in many aspects of life. And But the, the majority of what's going on today is that men have major league quality and they have experience. And that experience is not part of the calibration. There is right. nothing about psychology. There's nothing about character that is in an award evaluation. And back in the day, there was vastly more of that. Mm -hmm. There was more consideration for that. There was more put into the character of what goes into things. And that's because there was a a closer proximity to how the teams were built with the on-field personnel versus the executive personnel. Now there's a vast separation. One, one of those uh, character guys you're talking about that was uh, that a lot of his career and the jobs that he got was because of that was Terry Pendleton. And you just reminded me of when you said Kissel because he can't talk for, if you ask him about his background and his upbringing and where he got what he did, he can't talk for two minutes without mentioning Kissel. Like everybody that went through the Cardinals organization learned the Cardinal way. I think a lot of fans don't realize, Scott, that you played, what, four years of minor league ball with the Cubs and the Cardinals? Yeah, I had the good fortune of, uh, of uh, having great experiences with, with both them. Bob Kennedy was the farm director of the Cardinals and became the GM of the Cubs and traded for me and Fortunately, back then, they didn't have arthroscopic surgery, and I had three knee operations. So uh, <laughs> as, much, as much as I love hitting and doing what we did, it was just really, really hard to stay on the field, you know. Like Bobby Cox. And the injuries. And it is career, too. Um, what, and you were a walk-on at University of Pacific? Is that, and, and, uh, and he ended up being top 10 in a bunch of career stats? Yeah, I was very fortunate because I had, uh, back then, uh, academic scholarships you could give full rides for ah. rather than athletic. And so uh, in principle, you're an, an athletic walk-on, but uh, they uh, were able to certainly take great care of me during my time there. You were, people don't know your background. Your your dad was a, a, a dairy farmer? Is that a dairy yeah. farmer? Yes, dairy farmer, yeah. So you go to University of Pacific and you get uh, – I didn't realize that you had a degree in pharmacy, doctorate in pharmacy. Yeah, I have a, a, a and law, industrial pharmacology is my my background, and and I would go and play ball in the in the summers, and then go to school late, and then um, it's about a 
seven, eight year course uh, of education. And then I'd be in spring training and guys like Hallinier and Jack Kroll, they would monitor my neuropharmacology spring <laughs> 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 training. So it was a, it was a very, uh, it was a hilarious process <laughs> to, to kind of go through the academic and athletic world at one time like that. But, wow. but er everybody was so cooperative and, and grateful to allow me to, to pursue both an academic and athletic uh, career. And you put both of those degrees to work in your first job, right? Before you were an agent? Yeah, I, I went back to law school. And, um, and this is my point about Bob. Bob, you know, I, I hit about 290 in the minor leagues. And, and Bob just says, try to get your knees back. And he kept giving me contracts and really knowing that the probability of me coming back was was minimal. And, and uh, you know, and again, it allowed me to pay for law school. And, and um, I owe a lot to how I was treated in baseball in my career. And then when I got, while I was in law school, my close friend and uh, Mike Fishlin uh, asked me to help him with his contracts. And, uh -huh. and um, Bill Cottle and Keith Hernandez, you know, guys that I'd played with the Cardinal organization. Um, I kind of did an arbitration for, uh, for Bill and, and ah. it, it worked out pretty effectively for him. And they uh, got my picture in sports illustrated. And all of a sudden it, 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 I started getting phone calls Then I decided to help guys in the draft. And so I kind of went from medical law and working in a skyscraper in Chicago to doing something I was really passionate about. So you decided, you know, you can keep your foot in, in, your, in baseball doing this and, uh, and still make a good living doing this and doing what you be around a game still. Yeah, you found out that, you know, you're able to talk the game with your teammates and they wanted to talk with you. And it was very different than the agents that were in the game that they had had because they were they were not baseball people. They were they were uh, outside the game, if you will. And and um, and again, your teachings from. You know, I, I can't tell you enough is that, you know, you have Kenny Boyer or you, you have Kissel, you you have Hallinier, you, you, you had all of these tremendous mentors that gave you so much insight to the game, you know, uh, particularly particularly about what your shortcomings were. Yeah, <laughs> it were that, you know, <laughs> and you learned about the players that had the tools and did the things. And he also knew what you did well. And so that allowed you to evaluate talent and allowed you to understand how important the psychology of players was. Cause I got to watch how these players were mentored and they, how they grew and what they did. And, and so in our operation, I, I always wanted a, a dynamic where we have a training staff that monitored our, our players all year round and communicates with the team's players. Cause we also know the physical and mental aspect of players. And we want that to be at the forefront. And it's very costly, but it is an investment I know that really aids our, our players that we represent. And it keeps us closely involved with everything they do um, all during the offseason. We have training sites in Florida and California. We have apps. We have a way to stay in touch and monitor the players at, at great length. And it really gives us an understanding of what players are doing day to day. That, well, that's never been more uh, – uh important than I guess two of these last three years first during the shutdown yeah. and then this year where guys could not be at the team sites and rehabbing guys couldn't be at the team facilities your your plus has been a godsend I guess 
yeah, we have, you know, players are getting BP. They're, they're, they're getting their bullpens in. Uh, we're recording everything they're doing so that when they do go back to the camp, we're going to give all that information to the teams, uh, let them know exactly where they're at so that they really have had a spring training head start before they actually, uh, you know, when and if the uh, CBA gets completed. Scott, what, when you hear, uh, well, first, how, how big is your, your uh, staff and is that going to be enough when we go through what we're about to go through? I don't think you've ever seen quite what we're about to go through, right? The three or four weeks, maybe 95, it was similar? Well, yeah, we, we have 140 people on our staff and we have, you know, multiple resources as each of our venues. Um, and so we have really more than enough staff to do things. We go in, in sessions and we have some players like to work out in the afternoon, some in the morning. And so we're, we're able to uh, certainly provide uh, the spring training preparation for each individual athlete. But as far as the contracts and, and arbitration and all this, are you, are you, is it going to be crazy for you uh, uh, with all the clients you've got? We're very, look, we were very prepared uh, when we were doing many of the contracts because remember, of our we have fifteen or so major free agents, and we've signed four or five of them already. And and for those that didn't sign, we've already had a, a big part of the process that has evolved. So we're very up to speed as to what teams were interested and where they were. And uh, and when this process begins, we'll be able to jump back in and use all that information and data to to really kind of. Um, uh, be further along in each negotiation. Eric, what's it like for players to, uh, when they go, do you know players that Scott has represented and he tends to take it out to the end, right up to spring train or whatever, and be patient. What's it like for a player when you make that decision to go with Scott? Do you know that's part of it? And you, well, and it's nerve wracking. It's nerve wracking, but you have to trust that whoever's representing you knows what they're doing. You know, yeah. just like that's what the players are feeling with this lockout. You don't have an apartment set up. Yeah. You don't know when you're starting. I mean, your whole routine's thrown off, but that's that's kind of the negotiation process in general. Even my first year going to arbitration, they didn't make a real offer till five minutes before the deadline. And it's easy to panic and, and think you're not going to get it done, but you have to trust who's representing you and just kind of hang tight and hope, you know, hope they know what they're doing. And, you know, if you got a guy like Scott or who I had, you, you feel good about it, but if you don't, man, I mean, it's, that's when the teams get you and, and that's what they're doing right now. That's why they're not making offers. They're holding out is because they want that panic. So it's kind of a game of chicken, but you have to trust who's representing you. Scott, when you get a call from a guy like Correa late, right in the middle of this thing, uh, are you able to just say, yeah, we'll take you on too? Or do you never, you never go, no, I'm sorry, we're all booked right now? Well, well you, can, you can always make room I've, for a $300 million guy. <laughs> I've known Carlos since he's 15 years old, and we have a long history. And, and, uh, and obviously, in the shortstop market, we signed both Simeon and Seeger. Right. Uh, fully aware of the shortstop market, the team's interests, what they're doing. And so we could really hit the ground running when, when the bell rings. And remember too, David, that the rarity of someone not having a contract in spring training beginning in our instance is a very, very low percentage. I mean, I, I, people like to talk about those instances when that does happen, but remember like you could take uh, Strasburg and Rendon and Cole, they were the first players to sign. You know, I could remember right. uh, in many instances we've had, uh, we're, we're always the first to sign. So the idea that players are 
in spring training and unsigned and things like that. It, it frankly doesn't happen often in this situation. Obviously, it's going to happen to a number of players because of the fact that we're trying to make sure that um, the information to the player is collected over time. And sometimes it takes for certain players to sign for markets to open up for other players. So that's right. an signing attrition that takes place. The key thing for us is that our players are having a, a spring training modality. I remember one time we had a situation with Kyle Loesch where he literally signed, signed a week before the season and yeah. uh, a rare situation. He went out and uh, pitched one spring training game and then went out and uh, had a great season and started. He was the fourth, fourth starter in the rotation, which illustrates the ability of us to create a spring training situation and, and allow for a player to be ready to go out and pitch in the big leagues. Guys, let's take a quick break and then we'll finish up the show. Scott, just uh, real quick, you you got, I look at like the Astros, for instance, you had Altuve, you got Bregman, you got McCullers, you had Correa. I mean, you have him now, but he's obviously gone from there. Well, not gone from there, but he's a free agent. And then you look at a couple other teams. You got the Red Sox, you got Bogarts, Jackie Bradley, J.D. Martinez, James Paxton, Yankees, you got Cole, Gallo, Britton. Does it get to, and Rangers, you got Simeon and Seager, that glitzy middle infield. Does it ever get with guys, does it ever get tricky when you've got multiple guys on the same team, big dollar guys, and there's only so much of the pie, and you're negotiating for, does it ever get, you know, do your players ever, does it ever get uncomfortable at all? The great thing about being a lawyer is that you always let teams tell you what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, They make the decisions. Um, You don't ever look at it like um, you are you're going to make the decision. You don't go to teams and tell them who to sign. Uh, You don't make decisions that owners make and executives make. So the key thing is that you're in contact with them. You know what their priorities are. You know what they want to do. And the great thing about representing the best players at the same time, like you have Cole and Strasburg, two great pitchers on the market, same time. You know everybody is interested in everybody. Uh And you, you know you can tell the players more because you have more information. And so consequently the players are more relaxed because they're not in the dark about what's going on with someone who is of, of equal performance caliber. Um, you had going back, you had uh, Maddox was the first guy to go over $50 million contract. You did that one with the Braves. And then you had, I think the first over a hundred million with Kevin Brown, correct with the Dodgers and the first 200 million, with A Rod, can you tell the story, uh, the A Rod Brave story? Is that for public consumption that you've told that with uh, Bobby and, and uh, when uh, you brought him? How his contract uh, evolved? Yeah, when you brought him to the to Atlanta. <laughs> well, I think the one thing we knew from Atlanta was that Bobby Cox had Bobby Cox understood who Alex Rodriguez was and what a great player he was and what he could mean to a team. He also understood who was in his organization at the time. It was a remarkable group of talent. And um, in that setting, it was really going to be a, uh, um, a new financial setting for an evaluation of a player that proved that that 10-year contract he received, he earned his surplus value on it was, 
well over 100 million more than it turned out. So it was a great deal for the teams. The problem was that you have history, you have yeah. precedent, and whenever mm -hmm. you're whenever you're doing new markets and breaking new markets, there always is a a concern. There always is an organization that will, and an or and many organizations who won't. And um, I'm very happy to say that the first. 50 or 100 or 200 million dollar pitcher and Scherzer or, or Kevin Brown at the lowest ERA over five years in LA and and Maddox who I don't know if there's a better employment relationship that you can have than the one that Maddox had with the Atlanta Braves and so and he had record salaries both times so mm -hmm. you 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 really understand that when organizations are committed they usually understand the players well and that they know while it may be something that's never been done before the fact of the matter is the talent and the economics of the industry at that time uh, properly reward the commitment. And what I certainly like to do is go back and look in history when people talk to me about these contracts don't work out. Well, I have for I, I have two for every one that you say doesn't. I have two that do. So the, the reality of it is that it's it's something that's been highly effective and impactful for organizations to sign these elite players. You don't have any Braves clients and haven't for a while, but you did in the past, certainly, with uh, with Maddox and Andrew Jones and several others. Um, you have a good relationship with with uh, Alex, right? So there's nothing to stop you from getting guys here now, right? Oh, no. I, I mean, Alex, Alex is very community when he was in Toronto with, with L.A. I used to see him all the time. And, you know, he, uh, he has a, a strong affinity for data, and we have a lot of it. So we, uh, we get along very well. What, what have you thought about the job he's done here in the four years he's been here? Well, when you're sitting there with a ring on your finger, I would <laughs> say how to use the rules. You, you know what to do. And frankly, as I look at this team, um, it's going to be better in 2022 than it was in 2021. Mm -hmm. And so when you win and then your team's going to be even better, uh, I would say you've built a, a very extraordinary platform. Yeah, you talked about their young pitching that they have and the guys with a year under their belts and everything. Obviously, the Freddie Freeman questions out there, but they were raking in dough in the second half last year and with the battery. You talked about the battery being, I guess, example number one of the ancillary uh, revenues that a team's raking in. The, the Braves are certainly doing it. Um, would you expect to see their payroll rise some in these next year or two? Well, the great thing about the Atlanta Braves, we know everything about their, their yeah. profit uh, yeah. and – they are. They have monstrous profits. They have, you know, three four hundred million dollars in the bank, and they make well over a hundred million dollars uh, last year, and and that's just through three quarters. And they're a successful franchise. Good for them. They've done a really great job. And um, you know, you you want for franchises, and we obviously would expect that the players and the continuance of this momentum is something that really requires a combination of not only the young players they have, but the veteran players that. They need to, uh, you know, support uh, the future of the team. Scott, what do you uh, when people talk about you and say, you know, people that don't really understand the inner workings of the game and say that you're bad for the game or you're, you know, you're ruining the game? What are you able to uh, just kind of shake that off, knowing that you're out for the players and you played the game yourself and you know what you know what your purpose is? Does that not you know, bother you? Uh, my labor law professor told me long ago, he goes, look, if you're really good at what you do for your client, 95% of the things said about you are going to be negative. And you know what? 
fans <laughs> of major league teams, they want the best players. They want to yeah. have the most volume of the best players. Yeah. I don't fault them at all. And a guy that does what I do as a, as a lawyer for baseball players and trying to aid them and, and do the best decisions for them, uh, unless I'm there, unless I'm representing their son, I completely understand why they might may not be someone that really has uh, or really has little admiration for what, what I do, because it might be contrary to the interest of of who they root for and the betterment of their yeah. team. So uh, I'm I'm I hope every fan understands that that um, everybody that works for me uh, and I've got guys that have worked here 20, 25 years and myself, you know, we get calls from other sports. We get calls from from so many people to negotiate a lot of things, and all we do is baseball. We we pride ourselves in staying in the game, doing our best to make sure that the game is better because the athletes are better, and the athletes are committed and directed. There's contract from the fulfillment and what we do because uh, it's not only what we do before the contract. We're there after the contract with our resources. We have psychologists on our staff. We provide every every aspect of a resource for a player to allow him to perform optimally. And, and for me, that's the, that's the commitment to the game where you're sitting there and making sure you've done the best you can to get the highest uh, optimal performance for an athlete. And if he does that, he's committed to his team, he's committed to his fan base and he's committed to the league. Well, and, and what do you, when you say, when you say a fan say, try to reduce this to billionaires versus millionaires, fighting for all this money, um, they see that 500000 600000 minimum salary, and they don't understand that most of these guys don't play that long. And when they get out of baseball, they don't have a whole lot, most of them, to go to after that and take those skills. And uh, what can you say just about the players and their position in this as opposed to the owners? Well, the, the I think the idea of it is, like I said, this is uh... – the, the number of players that make it to free agency is, is really less than 15%. Mm -hmm. And the number of players that really spend three years in the, in the major leagues, when you look at the, all the players drafted, it's, it's well less than 1%. Yeah. For those that he can even craft out and make $2 million, making the minimum salary for three years, it, it is a small, small percentage of players. And uh, when you go to a big league game, I realize it's just taken for granted because the players are there. Mm -hmm. But for all of us who've been in the system and understand what it means to be a major league player and how hard it is and how so many of us through attrition of some sort don't ever reach that plateau, you always have the highest order of respect. And certainly I've got, I've got minor league plans. I've got minor league plans and I, I want minor league owners who are making millions of dollars. I want them to enforce standardization of housing. I want them to provide food for those young men when they're in their cities because no one knows their cities better than them. And we can create standards, but I got to have somebody to enforce them. And then I have somebody from the team go there and enforce them. And so we, we have to incorporate minor league ownership. They don't pay the player salaries. They get free labor, but they should mm -hmm. be giving them great food and great housing while they're in their cities. And so these are things that need to be done. We also have to have an incentivized program to where when you play over three years in the minor leagues, you get a $50,000 bonus, not paid by the team, but paid by a contributory pool that we put player fines and penalties in over time. If you actually do make it to the major leagues then and you didn't get a bonus that exceeded 
you know, a couple million dollars, you would then be able to get an extra $500,000 for making it to the big leagues. So that these men who've contributed their lives and they're going to have very short major league careers, they're getting a benefit from their minor league service, which as we all know is very important to the preparation of the great major leaguers that we enjoy. Yeah. Until that all came out last year, I don't think anybody understood how little minor leaguers make and, and the, and the way that they live sleeping on top of each other in one room apartments and all that. I don't think people had a clue what they were, what they, how little they made. Well, I think it's worse today than it was when I played. I mean, we made mm-hmm. four fifty five hundred a month, but the money went farther than yeah. 11 or 1200 a month they're getting now. Yeah. Yeah. Last thing, Scott, I just wanted to ask you about uh, Bobby Cox because you talked about him, uh, I know, during the World Series when I saw you, you mentioned Bobby Cox, and you said one of the greatest talent evaluators you've ever been around. What what do you think made Bobby Cox so special as a baseball man? I tell people when they ask me about executives over time, people who had the skill to evaluate talent, had the skill to manage talent, and also had the skill to be a general manager. Bobby Cox is one of the few people – that I've ever seen that had all three of those qualities because I dealt with them at all three levels Mm -hmm. and he was extraordinary at getting the best out of players, making an average player, a better player. Um, he was earnest, straightforward, um, as a manager, truly, uh, had a gift for doing it. And then as an evaluator, he came in and he had an eye for it. You know, I remember when he first saw Steve Avery and he called me on the phone and he knew right away who Steve Avery was uh-huh. and, uh, and, and he knew how special he was and, and used that pick to get him. And so it was a, it's something where, you know, he is really, uh, someone who is uh, in my mind, the, the foundation of the great nineties of the Atlanta Braves. And, um, they were certainly fortunate to have his skill set to, to guide them in so many ways and make so many judgments about both free agents, uh, draft and, and, the, and also the mentorship of the, of the players and developing them in the big leagues. We're going to be, we're going to get 162 in. Well, the thing of it is, is that I don't think anybody in this game understands because now we have investments that are around the ballpark as well as in the ballpark. Um, we have, uh, an evaluation of, of the performance of players that creates the highest revenue streams in major league history. So good business says that should definitely happen for everybody. No doubt. Yeah. All right. Hey, listen, Scott, I really appreciate all the time you've given us, man. It's, uh, it's been enlightening. And I'm sure a lot of fans are going to appreciate seeing a side of you. Maybe they don't know about well, thank you, so, David. Pleasure. So thank you. We're All right. Here. Eric, it was, it was great talking with you as well. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Scott. Okay, take care, guys. All right, see ya. Well, that was that, cool. That was some good shit. That's it, everybody. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I mean, I just, uh, I've known Scott, you know, for 20, since I started doing this, really. I met him probably third or fourth year at, at winter meetings. And, and I always, you know, he says some things that I know, People that don't know him think, oh, my God, this guy's a snake oil salesman or this guy's the worst. He's a cre-. he's not that at all. You know, he's a good dude. He really is. Yeah. And he's just doing his job for his for his clients yeah. to the utmost degree. 
but he's not a detriment to baseball by any stretch of the imagination. The game's, I think, better for him. You know, well, I mean, he broke it down perfectly that if you want your team to get the best players, you're probably not going to like him because he's going right. to make you pay what they're worth. But right, I really like the stuff he said about the minor leaguers. Exactly, man. Th- that was pretty cool. That's critical. It's critical that there's progress being made finally in that area, but it's not nearly enough. But yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, whether the players are getting this money or the owners are getting this money, the money's going to be raking in. The prices yeah. are not coming down. So it's like, do you guys want the best players in the game to be getting this money, or do you want this money to be going to the owners? Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's like he's right. The, the People buy these franchises, and they sell them for like 10 times as much 10 years later, or yeah. five times as much or whatever. But it, the point is, they're just it's foolproof. It's like an NFL franchise. It's bulletproof. You buy it, you're going to make a huge profit when you sell it. They take no risk. Yeah, I mean, even if you could just There's buy no a quarter risk. of a percent, you'd do it. Yeah, you I, I was it. thinking that when I heard that stock stock uh, market comment, I was like, I'd like to oh invest. Oh, my God, a spit take. I want to park like, my money with whoever's getting that return for their guys. I'm like, are you kidding me, Kamish? Really? You think people buy that shit? I mean, that is just utter bullshit, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can buy the Pittsburgh Pirates and draw 10000 a game and lose, you know, eight, lose 100 games a year, and you still make money. Yeah. A lot of money. A lot. So, yeah, I think, you know, I think it's it's similar to what I was saying with the free agency and arbitration processes. You know, in negotiations, the longer you can hold out and put pressure and, and some of the media leaks, all this stuff is just to see how strong the players are. But I, I think they've been preparing for this and they've had plenty of plenty of time to talk about it. You know, the last two spring trainings, I'm sure you have a meeting with Tony Clark and all the all the big wigs in the in the um, players association, all the all the people that are up top. You talk to them, right? Yeah. And and they break down the state of the game, where we're at with negotiations. I'm sure they've been telling players like, hey, don't go out and buy a Maserati or something this offseason because right. you might not be getting paid until May or June. Right. You know, you you guys need to mentally be prepared for this, and I, I think they are. You know, and and I think another big benefit's been players have a platform now. You know, you can leak what you want to the media. If you go on to Twitter, there's there's 35 guys responding yeah. to that with yeah. with fair points. Yeah. And and a lot of the players are well spoken and know how to get that message across and not just sound like greedy millionaires or yeah. whatever you want to call them. But it's it's also about the, yeah. yeah, it's it's about those guys making the, the league minimum two times. And and I think people need to understand if if you're in the major leagues making league minimum. You got two years to make it. Maybe you made one point two, but you clear six hundred. Yeah. And after that, you go out in the real world and look for a job. You're making fifty grand. So yep. people see you out in the real world after that, and they're out, they're wondering why you're working at some you know some regular job making forty grand a year with them, and you're supposed to be a millionaire because you played in the major leagues and yeah, you got a family and a mortgage and yeah, you, you know, got I, a, I mean you got a big nut too because you bought a nice house while you were doing that and a couple yep. of cars. You probably wife had a couple of kids because that's what yep. they do when they're back. You know, the wife's back making the babies while you're working, and all of a sudden your income's not coming in, but it's still going yeah. out. And it's a really harsh reality and a, and, a, and a steep drop, you know, for, for a lot of guys in quality of life and everything going out in the real world. And, you know, you, you look at it and you know you're really blessed to have gotten to do what you do. But for the most part, most guys that you see, you know, oh, yeah, he played in the majors. Oh, yeah, that guy played in the majors. They got a cup yeah. of coffee and they got a little chunk of change in their pocket. But that's what this fight's about just as much as, you know, Correa's going to get his money. Right. The guys, A-Rods are going to get their money. It's for the guys that 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 play two to three years. And 
dedicated 10, 15 years of, of, of playing their ass off and working out every day and working kind of a full-time job and got, you know, whatever, 20, 30 grand a year in the minors that they get one or two shots to really make some money, whether it's arbitration, how many guys flame out after their second year are first year are, they get one big chunk. And granted, that's a shit ton of money and nothing most people can dream about to ever have a million dollar year. But those are the guys they're fighting for, for them to have this big accomplishment and have something to show for it when they're done. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, – yeah, I like talking to him, man. I mean, whether uh, – you hate to see him represent your guy if your team's not going to pony up and keep your guy. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> well, yeah, if you're the Marlins or Tampa or somebody and right. you got this Evan Longoria type of talent coming right. through or – Whoever you know the the hottest guy is, you know your team's not going to get to keep him. But and, and if and if he's representing Ronald Acuna, he's not signing that eight year. No, <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. ain't happening, if, man. Yeah, see, so I mean, I understand the, and he was understanding too. You know, I mean, he, yeah. I thought it was pretty pretty good the way he put it, but that's not his job, and and you can't hate somebody for being great at their job. Yeah, yeah, sharp dude, man. Yeah, son of a dairy farmer went to. University Pacific gets a law degree and his doctorate in pharmacy and was representing uh, his first job. He didn't talk about his first job for a couple of years. He was a representing uh, pharmacy companies. He was a defense, uh, an attorney for them in lawsuits and everything. So, and then I, I want, I was curious how he got into representing players. I didn't realize it was because the guys he rep- he did some arbitration for guys, his former yeah. teammates. That's really interesting, man. Yeah, the baseball yeah. angle was cool. You know, knowing I, I never knew he played. I thought yeah. he, I just thought of him as an agent. So hearing that was like it makes sense because if you come out of the game or you were you're just still able to relate to guys and right. understand them and value them and tell them what they're good at in a, in a way that nobody outside the game can. No matter how many conversations you have with them, it's it's just different going through it right. and understanding. You know, understanding it's it's a harsh wake up call for guys that are. They're an all-star one year. Two years later, they're at home and their wife's going to work and they're watching the kids because they don't have a college degree. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. under, understanding how when he said the game will chew you up and spit you out, that happens to ninety-nine percent of us. And then you got your Freddies and Chipper Jones and guys that get to go out on their own way. But most yeah. of us just you're flashing the pan, you get chewed up, spit out, and the game doesn't care about you anymore. You're gone. Yeah, man, he played four years, and that was a couple of good organizations to play minor league ball yeah. in the Cubs and especially the Cardinals. Man, everybody that plays in the Cardinals organization comes out saying when Kissel was there and still active and everything, especially, you know, playing the Cardinal way, they just learned so much about the game. Terry Pendleton just praised that guy all the time. You learn a lot about life from those guys, too. Yeah, yeah. A lot of life lessons. Those guys that are around for it, like Snicker, you know, guys yeah. that are around organizations, guys that are in the minor leagues for decades. You can learn a whole lot being around those guys, man. Yeah, that's why Snit's a great manager because yeah. he he went through the minors and failed, and he's had his however many times he's been fired in the game. He knows how harsh the game is, and not losing that, he can repl- uh, relate to the players so well. Yeah, but they, I think that's why we've talked about this, why I think a lot of the marginal players, guys that never made the major leagues, um, are the best managers because they yep. know how hard it is to be good. <laughs> they know that pain. <laughs> and they respect those players, and they don't yep. – they, you know, and they don't – they treat them with respect, you know, because they yeah. know how hard it is to do what they're doing. Yep. Yeah. So. All right. Well, that was good. I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know what we got him as far as uh, when we can expect this thing to <laughs> to get going. But <laughs> it's going to be a game of chicken, I think. I, I think though now that it's he put it pretty well when he said that there's all the extra well, avenue revenue streams out there. You know, teams don't want to lose right. out on when we were talking right. about attendance. You know, it's also the battery and and Wrigleyville and all these places Absolutely. around the stadium that they want they want popping for April and May. And Cardinals have got one of those now. Yep. And everybody's building them that doesn't have one. It's the way it's going now. Uh, he wouldn't talk much about the current because he said, you know, and he told me that before he wasn't going to talk about the current negotiations much because he's being portrayed as the boogeyman behind, you know, behind these negotiations because he represents like five of the seven guys on the executive council, the yeah. players union. So he really is having a say in, in these negotiations. I think, you know, as far as what he's telling his guys to say and all that. So Shit, I'd want to lean on him. You yeah, know, I mean, he's somebody that sees how it works and what the approach is from how they're trying to save and spend money right. and what, You'd want to lean on agents for sure, right? But if he wanted to, he could have come out and told us exactly what's being yeah. said. These, you know, <laughs> yeah. you don't want yeah. to be so obvious. That wouldn't <laughs> but, be good. But and I did want him to say the story about Chipper, and, and uh, he, I, I, he didn't want to because he didn't mention. The, it's a great story, but since he didn't name, want to name the names, but it involves Stan Caston and, and and some profane language, and it was it was quite funny. But I'm not going <laughs> to say it out of respect for Scott not wanting to say it. So maybe but next tell, time. He tells it, yeah. He tells it. It's very funny. Stan would laugh, I'm sure, because Stan like gets yeah. a kick out of you know <laughs> things he says. But it was what a comment that Stan made to A Rod. It was quite, it was hilarious. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> All right, man. Well, we'll do this. Uh, we'll do this again next week. Um, players, the union and the and MLB is meeting on Saturday, day before the Super Bowl. We're taping this before that. This is coming out Monday morning, and uh, hopefully. There's going to be some progress made next week. Uh, hopefully, Saturday they make some, you know, move towards progress in the following week. And I think once they start clicking off some boxes, it could happen quickly. Yeah. But right now, there's still quite a bit of distance yeah. between them on these key issues. So I'm not ex- anticipating it. Um, and, and they still got a couple of weeks where th- if they if they get this thing done in a couple of weeks, they could still have spring training and start the season enough. on time. Yeah, yeah, they can have enough. I, and weeks. I think once, once the ball gets rolling and real offers start coming to the table and both sides are ready to play, I think it yeah. can happen pretty quick. What, it's the 11th? I'd say if they could get this thing done by like the 25th, somewhere around there. A month's plenty, yeah. And that gives you time, five or six days to to get everything together, get to camp and have a month of yeah. spring training and start the season that's on time. That's plenty. So. That's what I'd be looking at if I were them. You know, I, I imagine they are as, as you know that last week of this month. It's a, kind of the absolute deadline when you'll start missing some games in the regular season if they don't by then. Yeah, four weeks. I think they got to have four weeks spring training. Yeah. Three and a half, four would be yeah. ideal. Probably be the right timing anyway. <laughs> it's too yeah. long in the first place. Yeah, and everybody knows it. And I think that's why everybody's really not feeling not like, fresh, <laughs> feeling up against yeah. the wall yet, like you know yeah. fans are. You know, players know. Yeah. They like, can feel grounders at home. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate it. Seven fifty-five is real. Thanks again to Scott Boris. We're out. Yeah.